from tragedy to triumph. Hosted by Aaron Lane. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Tragedy to Triumph. I'm your host, Aaron Lane, a man in long-term recovery who has dreams and aspirations of doing big things. Now, on a daily basis, we hear tragic stories in the news of people losing their lives to overdose, children displaced in the system, the ugly side of addiction. But my goal here is to present you with amazing success stories of people who have changed their lives and gone from tragedy to triumph. My guest today is Sean Moak. Did you say it right? That is correct. Good, Sean. Well, I always, I always wonder, we've known each other for a bit, but I always have this feeling I'm going to say your name wrong. But Sean, before we get in this amazing story of your transformation, use, everything in between, why don't you give the listeners an idea of what you're all about? Well, I, uh, you know, definitely had quite a bit of history of alcohol and drug use, and I really didn't even realize that I had a history of alcohol abuse like I did until I got sober. But he has, you know, a lot of, a lot of drugs, a lot of partying is what I thought it was at the time. Really, it was just kind of what I like to call slaving away to <laughs> the lifestyle, and got I it. had no idea, but... And at this point in my life, I've, you know, reached a point of recovery. I've been sober for four and a half years. And uh, I'm very, very grateful for that at this point. And, and I'm grateful for the people involved and the people who have been there for me along the way. And, uh, you know, at this point in my life, it's just about service and helping other people who deal with the same issues. That's a really beautiful thing, man. When we break down, most of the people that come on the show talk about giving back, right? They say, I have a life that is uh, full of, you know, service work or working with people that are still struggling, but there's some catalyst to, to everybody, regardless of the path of recovery they have, is that they give back. And I'm learning this in each episode that, wow, that's the thing that keeps this going. That allows us to ha- keep this recovery and you've just made that even more evident by saying you have four and a half years uh, within that your life now centers around you helping others and living a life because uh, uh, that is uh, with the coverall of recovery. So it's not just not drinking and using anymore. It's these uh, philosophies of how we should live and approach life, right? That's right. So if we, want, if we can do this and rewind the clock a bit, because I know that because you do this today, I I don't think there was ever a point in your life years ago where you ever thought this would be the case. You would never be doing these types of things. Of course not. So I want to rewind it, rewind it all the way back as far as we can go. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? What was that like? Well, I I grew up in a really decent neighborhood, really. I had no issues with my you know, bringing up. I grew up with my mother. I had two brothers, my sister in my home, and extended family. I had three stepbrothers, two stepsisters. I was on the younger side of that group, so I kind of tended to hang out with the older individuals. But uh, I grew up in Mainville, Ohio. It's a nice little clean town, not a lot of issues at all, no crime. I mean, the cops will literally sit there at the stop sign and, and look for uh, you know, look for you to run a stop sign. Right. And that's that, kind of that's all they have really to. And that, that was <laughs> go pretty much them. it. Yeah. So any <laughs> anytime they saw any mischief, you know, it kind of tended to be pretty much nothing. So it was a decent area. I grew up in a decent area with a decent family and I had no issues prior to that. Um, it's always intriguing to me, right? Because, you know, people assume that it was a life of just absolute chaos from an early age or, you know, um, you know, how people get, how on earth would you ever try heroin and how on earth would you do these things? And, and, and it's interesting because you're, you're making it evident that, uh, you, I'm saying the way to say this, that you had a normal upbringing 
for all intents and purposes. And then at some point, these things change. Yeah. Like there would have never been on your radar. It was the same thing in my life. There was never some type of huge warning sign. And I had experimented young, mind you. But it was just experimentation like a lot of people experience. You know, drinking on the weekends, trying pot for the first time, smoking cigarettes, whatever these things are. Uh, and it wasn't like I was doing it every day. I just have a, a fairly good memory of those times because I've done enough treatment work to say how far back does this really go, right? So you, you I didn't hear you mention a dad. Was your dad not in the picture? <clears throat> uh, my father was in the picture. Okay. Yeah, my parents divorced when I was young. I didn't really uh, frequent my father's all that often. I'd be over there like every other weekend. Okay. And as I got older, I really didn't go over there hardly at all. And it was mainly because of my lifestyle of partying on the weekends. Got you. So come like high school, you know, I was never really at my father's house. And um, I mean, it, it just continued to, I, I continued to draw away from my family, really. Even though I was living in my mother's home, the older I got, I would just isolate in my bedroom. Really? In my mother's. Yeah. Do you remember why you would do that? I mean, really, like, look at it. Just to enjoy what I was doing, I guess. And and really, I guess to, I mean, I wouldn't say enjoy it, but I, to, I mean, that's just where I was at. You know, I wanted nothing to do with anybody and I just wanted, wanted to continue to be to myself. When did, at what age did that happen? I mean, because you started this off and saying you had a, a you know, a, you lived in a nice neighborhood. You had a, 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 a great childhood. I mean, do you yeah. remember any, like, was there any early trauma or anything? I, that I had absolutely really... no trauma and that's in my the life thing. at that's all. That's what's curious to me. I mean, even with, you know, parents being divorced, this is, this happened when you, when you were very young. I so was you, very young. So your whole life, this is just what it was. You're like, oh, I went to go see my dad. You know, on weekends, it wasn't like uh, you were faced with the divorce at like twelve or something, right? Yeah, I mean, I was I was probably like five or six at the time that my so parents got sure. divorced, so it was kind of like normal for me living with my mother and going back and forth. Right, it wasn't like a foreign life to me. It was just what you were used to. Yeah. Now, also, you did say that you hung out with people that were older than you, and that was more out of the necessity. Like there were, were you no know, people really your age, or because you were the youngest in the family, or. <laughs> I mean, really, I think that, you know, because I started kind of like going to parties with my brother when I was younger, I started smoking weed when I was 10 years old. Oh, wow. And I, you know, it's just kind of weird circumstances that uh, allowed that. And I took it and ran with it. And because my brother, you know, he's five years older than me, he's hanging out with people who, you know, did the same thing. So that's where I was at. That's crazy, though. You're 10 years old, hanging out at a party with your brother. I, I still can't believe it I either. Mean, you look, I mean, and I think a listener is going to say that, especially ones that aren't in recovery, right? Because a lot of the listeners here are family members of or people who just like these nitty-gritty details of someone's life. They feel like they're a fly on the wall, right? Yep. And you're 10 years old, going to a parties with your older brother, who's 15 at the time. Do you ever feel, or looking at that... That you were maybe like the comic relief or like, we'll see if we what we can get my younger brother to do type thing. And I really think that was the case. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I recall a few instances where it was like they enjoyed seeing me do that. And I mean, at the time, like I'm a small guy as it is. So me at that time, I was probably like three foot nine and just, just a little bit of intake. Yeah. Right. You know, I remember sitting on top of a uh, at, at a, a car in a field party right. in a lawn chair stuck to the lawn chair. I don't remember how I got there. I just remember, you know, <laughs> sitting on top of this car in the middle of a field party and everybody else is out doing their thing. Dude, I used to have a neighbor. Uh, when I lived in College Hill, small suburb in uh, Cincinnati, my next door neighbor had a black lab, right? 
and it was and the, the dog that really never left the backyard, so it used to poop a lot. And they would have me scoop up the the poop. They'd give me like a cutout Tide bottle, and I'd scoop it all up and I'd throw it over the fence, right? And they'd pay me to do this. Well, they and they would give me fifty cents or a dollar. I mean, it didn't take me long, but it was they just trying to give this kid something to do. Well, one time I go over there and they're having a party and I'm trying to, they're making me scoop it while the party's happening. And this dog is attacking me as it's happening. And the parent, every, all these grow, these adults are like laughing because I'm getting attacked by this dog. Uh, and I'll never forget. It. I was kind of messed up. Like I was their entertainment. Like here's your 50 cents. They just watched me get attacked by the dog and, and scoop up his shit. So yeah. man, maybe that was traumatic. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, like in fact, you, well, I mean, I get it though. Like fifteen year old boys are assholes, right? And yeah. you get this like um mob mentality at times and, and you were their entertainment. They're already messed up. They're already drinking and smoking weed. They they wanna you know, you wanna be a part of anyway. I would have to assume that you're like, you wanna hang out with your brother. This is and this is what you kinda have to do to be a part of, right? Yeah. So early on, 10 years old, so did that become a regular thing or is that just sprinkled in? I mean, that was like the very beginning of it. And I I do recall that I started, you know, smoking weed every day by the time I was 13 because I picked up on somebody who was selling it. And then I started uh, to sell it to support my intake, really. Yeah. And that's what I did. But even so, drinking started really early, too. And I my first bad consequences with drinking, I ended up at a church lock in. Uh, when I was 12 years old and my poor mother, you know, I know she's going to end up listening to this at some point, right? I don't remember anything about the situation other than what people told me at school. I remember apologizing to some guy that I had never met, you know, when I was throwing up in the bathroom and I remember my saint of a mom walking me out of that church. Like ashamed. Absolutely like, just like what is wrong with you? Why are you getting drunk at a church lock-in? Yeah, absolutely And you're zoused. Like you're through like three sheets to the wind. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, it took a few days of recovery for that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What I mean, you say, what was your mom? How Did your mom not have control of you guys? Or what was the thing? Was it already too late? She really did her best. Okay. She really, really did her best. But nothing she could do would stop me. Nothing. I mean, there's nothing that she could do that would stop me. And eventually, I think that she just kind of let it ride because I was going to do it anyway. I was going to find any way to make happen what I wanted to happen, and that was to drink and get high. And now we are really good at that. I think that it's kind of like don't push the red button, right? Yeah. Uh, one, you had already, for whatever reason— uh, and, and we could call it peer pressure, we could call it desire, we could call it just circumstance that you experimented, and now this became a part of your life. You're a child. You're not an adult. I have kids that are that, that this age, and I, it's always, it baffles me, because it's like I can never see my daughter, even my oldest at 14, doing any of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, underdeveloped brain, all these, you know, it just doesn't fit into my equation, yet I did it myself, Right. Uh, and not be, and maybe that dynamic is because I am a grown up now and I don't want my kids to go through what I went through or, you know, I mean, it could be a long list of things. It's a little girl. I mean, why would girls do that? I don't know my reasoning other than just saying it's just not supposed to be like that. And I don't think it is. I think you would agree with that. This is not how people should be growing up at 10 years old, 13 years old, smoking weed every day. Well, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I never really anticipated the lifestyle that I ended up with for quite a while. Well, somebody could argue though, that you started really early. So you're the, the things that we're about to hear and your story 
are going to be a chain of events that just get progressively more crazy. I would, I would, I would guess. Nice. And I've heard your story before. That's why I'm excited to have you in here today. So, 13 years old, your mom do did her best, and we can look at that, and you can address that at sober mind today and say, "Wow, my mom did everything she could, but I was going to do what I was going to do." Right. And that's what it was, you know. Like and I think she, it's fair. Yeah, she she worked, you know, full time and a good job just to support her children. Uh, she had four children, and she you know, focused a lot on making sure we have what we needed. Right. That's why I told you, you know, I grew up with a good lifestyle, really. I got what I needed. I often got what I wanted. And, you know, my alcohol and drug intake really had nothing to do with that. It was no. just like something was different about me. And what about your your siblings, though? Like, your brother obviously was doing this, but he was now older. He's, like, getting out of the house now, right? Yeah, they, they, did, they did what normal people do, and they grew out of it. Okay. I don't know how or why, but yeah, they they grew out of it, and I kind of I couldn't. I was incapable of stopping. That's so wild. I had no idea. So, um, do you remember at any point in time, like uh, your mom making any grand efforts to stop you? Um, I at the very beginning, yes, yeah, but eventually I started running running around with my friends, you know, who were you know when I turned like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. There was, you know, I, I was just out and about doing my own thing. And uh, she would try to sway me in the right direction. But again, I mean, you know, even the I church lock in was kind of probably one of those things, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was just on a path of destruction. It's unreal. And I had no clue. I didn't know. I mean, did your was... mom ever, you were said you were selling weed too in, I guess, middle school, high school, right? Yeah. And did your mom ever know that you were doing that? Eventually, she did find out. What was that like? I, I mean, it was kind of weird. I remember she called me at school one day, and uh, she got upset with me because she found out that I was not, um, you know, because I had kind of, like, run low, and she found out that I was using lunch money, you know, accumulated lunch money to purchase what I needed in order to kind of get my business back into action. Interesting. And, okay. And she was very unhappy about that. I believe I was in the ninth grade at that time. You were, you were basically, you weren't eating lunch. You were taking the money that she was giving you for lunch every day, yep. and you were stacking that so you could buy weed. Yeah. And she found out. How did she find out? I don't even recall, honestly. I just remember the conversation in the hallway, and she was very unhappy about it. But And it's like I knew she knew. Right, but you were like, whatever. I'm going to do this. That's what it was. I did it anyway. You're a little asshole as a kid. I, I really was. No, I mean, just I call mean, for what it is. <laughs> like, I mean, if I had to watch your badass self, like when I was, I mean, I don't know what I would do. I don't even know what I would do now if I was faced with this. with one. Of my, and I think at some point I obviously will be. I mean, I hope that my kids have learned from the fact that their dad had serious substance abuse issues, that they will never participate. But I also am a realist and understand that they're going to be introduced to it. And there's going to be an aspect of whether it's peer pressure pressure or, you know, curiosity, that we're going to cross that, right? Yeah. I just hope it doesn't even stem even a tenth of what I have experienced. I hope that as well. Um, and, you know, and I don't want to deviate too much, but as a dad of three girls, I think that's a, a, a valid concern of mine. I can only imagine. Because I don't think you'd want to raise a kid like you. Most definitely right. not. No, <laughs> I right. absolutely nothing to do with that. <sighs> but you're a good guy, though, too. So, like, how was high school? Were your grades good, or were they? did they suffer? Or? And, you know, high school is when it really started to kind of, like, take off. Interesting. And, you know, I had great ambitions at the beginning of high school. I wanted to go to college. I, I wanted to be a psychiatrist, and that might have been a, a little uh, biased <laughs> of a, a, a path for me because 
I, I did enjoy drugs. You know, I did a right. lot of prescription medications at that time too. Really? How did that, you get introduced to that? I, I, I can't Just even, the, yeah, I mean, you know, it happened once. I remember it started with like simple stuff like tramadol, if you okay. want to call that simple, but I, yeah, non-narcotic pain yeah, medication. Non-narcotic with quotes. Do. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, <laughs> I could abuse it and I did. And that turned into, uh, you know, just everything else. I did a lot of uh, benzos. I did a lot of amphetamines. And I tried to figure out the right concoction to be able to function and not have to worry about the way that I feel. And I don't know what it was about the way I felt. I just, I heard someone say one time that reality was just too real. Got it. I, I can see that. I mean, you know, I just posted a meme yesterday on my page that said, uh, no, uh, no drugs. I'd rather, you know, I won't use drugs. I'd rather go through these panic attacks the way God intended. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I saw that. I saw yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I recall seeing that. And and part of it is just me being like, yeah, in some respects, like I because I have panic. I have some an generalized anxiety that I experience and, you know, I don't use any medications. And, and sometimes I don't know if it's that I should or, you know, whatever that is, but it's almost like this is kind of suffering at times. Like, yeah. why am I going through this? And I just thought it was funny to share. But even like you're a kid, you don't know if there's, there's no diagnosis in front of you, right? You mm -hmm. weren't being shopped to a psychiatrist yourself uh, or, I mean, you had some, uh, you didn't really get in trouble with the law yet. You had some family dynamic issues, but ultimately, you were in a position where you could try all these different things, and you were trying them young, and your brain's not even developed yet. Yeah. So amphetamines like Adderall, Ritalin, uh, the pain medications, benzos, yeah. you know, um, and like these different concoctions. And it's wild to consider that that was a part of, you know, and there, look, how old are you? 28. 28. Okay. So we're talking, you know, the past, you know, you've been clean sober for four, four and a half years. 24 when you got sober, right? 23, 24. Yeah, 23. 23. So for about 10 years of your life or 13 years of your life, this was pretty much the focus. That was, all this that was the dedication. Right. Yeah. All, and, all day, every day. You know, that's what my day revolved around. And what point, didn't you play sports though in high school? I did, yeah. And like I said, you know, I had great ambitions in high school and I was trying to, you know, go to college to be a psychiatrist. And as the progression happened, I wanted to become a psychologist and then okay. I wanted to go for business uh, I played baseball. I played baseball for a uh, nationally ranked baseball team, select baseball. And we were always kind of, we were always ranked number two in the state behind, uh, you know, the Cincinnati Flames, which were also a really good baseball team. And uh, I played baseball pretty much year round up until the 10th grade. And That's I, interesting, though. Like, how do you play baseball and use drugs at the same time as a high school kid? You know, I mean, this I, first two years of high school, right? Those first few years of high school, was I quit playing uh, high school baseball in the 10th grade. Okay. And it's because I got cut because I had an attitude. I most definitely had an attitude problem when I was younger. <laughs> um, and that settled down a lot, thankfully. But, yeah, I, I really don't know how I did it all. I really don't. It was like my dedication outside of baseball was that. And I was probably honestly even thinking about it when I was at baseball. But when I'd go out of town, you know, I'd do whatever I had to do to make sure I had what Something I with wanted you? and what I needed when I left town. You travel it, travel with it. I would, would you bring I, weed with you on on trips? Always, really, always. On a, was it mostly like a bus or was it ever on a plane? No, my it would be my parents 
driving. Your parents were driving. You'd make sure that you had everything you needed for that. I would pack my own bags, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you would, like, sneak off. Sneak off. Yep. Sneak away. You know, go change my clothes. Get what I needed. Go away. Like, I'm just going to run around the hotel for a little bit. and I'll be back. I just need to clear my mind before we play this game and that type of thing. Yeah. So you would leave your family, your your mom. Did you have a stepdad, too? Uh, Yeah, my stepdad was actually the head coach of the baseball (laughs) team. There you go. So... So here you are in other cities, uh, playing a, prof- a, a you know what do you call it select baseball? Select baseball, and you would leave when you guys got somewhere to duck off so you could get high. Yeah, and then come back, and people would kind of turn a blind eye to it, or they just didn't. Know. I mean, you were pretty good I, at I, hiding. I, I, it. I think I was pretty good at hiding it for quite a you while. Like hygiene on you and all the whole. Uh, night. Oh yeah, I, w- I would make sure that I would. You know, I, I went. Balls to the wall to try to make sure that nobody would ever figure out. And I did that throughout high school, too. You know, I, That's how you I, I got would it. make sure that I would never take anything to school. It was really because I didn't want anybody to interfere with my Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, but I also look at what how I did to hide stuff in, in high school or middle school. And, like, smoking cigarettes. And I yeah. would what, put them in my waistband. Or I'd put a lighter. I remember one time I put a Zippo, and I had just filled it up before I left at, like, you know, my stepmom is taking me to school. This is how terrible this is, right? So I fill up a Zippo with lighter fluid, and I didn't it, it overfilled it, and I put it in the my sock, right? And because she would pat down my pockets, make sure I didn't have anything, so I have cigarettes in my waistband because she's not going to touch my wiener. And I put the lighter in my sock right by my foot because just what it was. Well, anyway, this uh, lighter fluid is le- leaking out onto my leg for this twenty-five minute ride to school and it's giving me a chemical burn you know what i mean yeah so now and i feel it i can feel the heat of this stuff on my skin skin irritation but i can't just go ahead and take it out because i don't want to get in trouble for having a lighter on me yeah so the whole time she's talking to me i'm just like please let me out let me out let me out like i call i think about and finally i get to school and the first thing i do like once she pulls away i take that lighter out and i wipe try to wipe off my leg and, and put the lighter in my pocket and there's this like dry this uh, well, on my ankle, the size of a Zippo lighter, and then it ends up blistering up and all of this stuff. I mean, this was a circ- you know a consequence of my action. Yep. But I damn sure wasn't going to get caught with it. That's exactly it. Whatever I got to do to not get That's caught so crazy. is right. exactly what I would do. <laughs> yep. Oh, this is exciting. I love this. I love this stuff. I think yeah. it's so because it just gives you the the psyche of of the stuff we're willing to do to protect something that is really damaging. But at the same time, there were really no consequences. You were still able to play baseball. You still you were able to to, to successfully use. Um, you're getting through high school. I mean, so really, if there's no, you had no reason to stop. Yeah, I had no consequences really. You know, I got I got caught with uh, marijuana and possession of paraphernalia when I was, I think, sixteen. Okay, where was this? Uh, I was actually just kind of at a lake with a few friends, and we sat there for about three hours. Somebody called the cops. Oh, they showed up, and uh, you know, I I gave it up. Just kind of gave in, whatever. Took yeah, the probation, but I, I couldn't even quit smoking weed at the time, you know, and I did my best to do that. And the longest I could quit was for two weeks. And uh, so you had a probation officer in high school? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that is a consequence. I think we should dive into that. And we're, because look, I mean, you know, I, I think it's, I'm curious about it all. And I think it's, they're good stories. I think that they are really give some insight here. 
So 16 years old, out with some buddies, down, uh, you're at a lake, yep. like kind of just hanging out. Just hanging out. And you get tr- caught with weed in like a pipe or papers or whatever. Yeah. Your parents find out, obviously. Oh, yeah. She'd, she'd come pick me up. From the jail? <laughs> from uh, the police just, station? Just from right up there. And now, you know, that she, I, I sat in the cop car for about 45 minutes, called her. and Right, mom, I'm in trouble. She picked me up and I went home. Of You know, of course, thankfully... Uh, there was still some marijuana at home, so I got still got to smoke that night. Right, but they took everything I had, and yeah, and that was the beginning of my first legal consequences of anything to do with alcohol and drugs. And I didn't think it was a big deal. Do you remember that ride home, sitting in the car with your mom? I or, do not. Okay, no. If but, you could, if you could guess, what do you think that was like? If you could remember, I mean, awkward, <laughs> awkward, but. I do know that she knew kind of what I was doing because, again, you know, she kind of just gave up on trying to stop. Right. And she quit really interfering, and she tried to kind of, like, step in and say, like, this is becoming an issue again at the time, but. They get you a lawyer. They said, nope, you just got to go take care of it. I I, I don't even think, I don't don't think so. I mean, I I just know that I ended up with a probation officer, and um, I had to do some little, like, three-week, like, three-day weekend class somewhere okay at some point is the only time i got drug tested i managed to pass that drug test and that was that just like clean out your system before you had to do it or something do you remember i I, that was the only time i quit smoking for two weeks okay that was the longest period of time i could quit and as soon as i took that drug test i went home and and that was that yeah i mean i had done prepared and had uh you know weed and pipe Right. Well, so it's just it's just baffling to me, dude. Like here you are, sixteen years old, getting in trouble. Your mom is just kind of like, I, there's, you're you're too hot to handle, too cold to hold, type thing. Yeah. <laughs> Not like the Ghostbusters song, but nonetheless, you uh, you go through like a it's almost like a, a three day Talbert House quick rehab about how drugs are bad and how they're going to ruin your life. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and was, you had to sit through it and it was probably like, dude, I'm 16 years old. It's just weed. Get a grip. Well, right? it, was, it was funny. Cause there was actually a snowstorm that weekend. It got snowed out one day and the next day we went down there and the power was out. So it was really only a one day deal. <laughs> and they chalked it up as I like, finished, whatever. You know, I took the drug test. I passed it and, and they that left was that. it at that shit home free. So now the next two years of your high school are like what? It got real bad real fast. I I started doing a lot more pain pills. I started drinking and partying a lot more. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what I always refer to it as is partying, but really it was what I had to do. And it was what I I needed to do to feel all right, to feel a part of. So, uh, you know, as high school went on, I, I did a lot more prescription medications and opiates became... Huge. Huge. Right. Yeah, and that's where it happened. It started with Vicodin, <clears throat> turned into a Percocet, and uh, eventually, you know, I was doing, like, Perc 30s because they were big at the time. Right. I was doing a lot of Perc 30s, and that was when things kind of, like, started going really downhill. Did you? How did you finance that? I was working at the time. Okay, so you had a job, and all your money was pretty much going to pills. Yeah, I was working at least 30 hours a week at a Papa John's. And, uh, yeah, I mean, all of it, every bit of it. I didn't have Easy. bills. You know, I lived in right, my mother's basement. Yeah. I had no responsibilities, nothing. All of my money went to that. Did you ever suffer any, like, uh, withdrawal during this time? I did. I mean, uh, you know, eventually, somehow, 
I truly believe that it's by the grace of God. I don't know how that works, but I, I managed to graduate high school right. with a decent GPA. And uh, I, I tried out college at the time, but really a little while before that, I don't know how it came about, but my mother convinced me to uh, get help because I couldn't stop doing the perk 30s. And uh, I, I ended up at a suboxone doctor for my first time. I was 18 years old. Really? Yeah. And she was kind enough to try to help me get yeah, on a she's better path. Son, right. I get that. It's like, it was like, son, the weed is one thing, but this is killing you. This is terrible. Yeah. This is changing you. I mean, you know, were you just swung them? Were you snorting them? Or? Uh, I was snorting them. Okay. Yeah. And I would do as much as I could, really. Whatever I had to do to get as many as I could, I would do. And and I was, you know, so locked in on it that I'd buy a quarter of one. Right. And I would do it. Be a tiny little pebble and nothing. Right, just to keep it right. Yep, just to kind of get something in my body. Do you remember what you were paying for them? Um, I mean, it started off at $20, but right. it's, you know, the uh, Florida... Pipeline. Yeah. Which it, I've talked about on other episodes, and just to refresh people's memories at one point in time... Uh, you know, Florida has a lot of issues when it comes to pain clinics and the recovery industry and marketers and body brokering and all of these things. Like I, uh, on another episode, I'll be diving into that. But to, to kind of refresh up people's memories who may have not have heard that, at one point in time, there was this thing called the, the pill pipeline. And what people could do is head on down to Florida, show a doc, get an MRI at a doctor's office, get pills on site, narcotic pain medication uh, in large amounts. I mean, anywhere from 180 Percocet. 30 milligram uh, to 200 and so, I mean, like a lot of them. And on top of that, they could also get, um, you know, barbi- not barbiturates, some of barbiturates, but muscle relaxers and benzodiazepines, including like Xanax. So you could get uh, several thousand dollars worth of, of street price medications, narcotics from a doctor. And there were hundreds of people going to the same place every day. This was a huge problem. It is an ugly thing, a stain on our on our country, and and deeply contributed to the uh, opioid epidemic or pandemic, as I like to call it. And what would happen is people would go down there; they would take buses of individuals, but get these pills because the doctors knew what they were doing. They were just giving out these prescriptions. But you'd go down there; they give you an MRI, they give you the meds. You'd leave. You could take a whole bunch of people with you. Next thing you know, you've got you have fifty thousand dollars worth of of narcotic pain medication, you'd come back to Ohio and then you'd sell them on the street. And this was just, this went on for a while, but after a point in time, you know, the DEA and and other government organizations cracked down on it. So that pipeline was shut off, I mean, and changed in a lot of ways. So what Sean is referring to is at one point in time, while this was uh, wildly available and it was available to me too, at one point, that closed, and so other things needed to come into the picture well, that's, because that 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 addiction was still there, and it was yeah, and, and that's when the you know the cost went up for everything, right. and and uh, you know I actually I don't know if you're familiar with Opana's, which is an even stronger oxymorphone, yeah, Correct. oxymorphone, an even stronger uh, pain medication mm-hmm. uh, that kind of came into into play. Which I did the Suboxone thing for eight months. You know, I I was doing. I mean, I guess you could say I was doing all right, but I drank and smoked weed the whole time. Right. I didn't know that that was an issue until the suboxone doctor told me. And, of course, I tried to dodge all that and play the game to make it through. But I ended up, uh, you know, getting off suboxone and going right back to Percocet. And that's when Opanas came into the picture, and they were very prevalent. I was getting them for uh, 
you know, very cheap, and right. I was selling them for what they were worth, which was double what I was paying for them. Got you. So I was doing them for free and selling the rest. You know, I'd sell half and do the other half for free, and it was an easy way to live. And uh, that is when were you buying that really prescription bad. from someone or getting it prescribed? I was I was buying that prescription. So you were buying somebody. that from somebody who was like, "Look, I they just want to get rid of them. They knew they they weren't using them necessarily themselves." Yeah. Because this was a thing, too. Like, people actually would just go to the pain clinics to get these medications just to sell them to make a living. Yeah. And, and I mean, this particular individual that I was, you know, kind of getting them off of, it was crazy how it worked, you know. Because, like I said, I had ambitions and stuff, and I, I wanted to do stuff with my life. But at this point in my life, for nine months, I find myself in some 45, 50-year-old guy's garage nine months straight every day. Just for that. And that's what I was doing. I'd go over there just for that. I'd wait for them or I would sit around and do them. And I disappeared from, you know, I slept at my mother's. That was pretty much it. I was never there. I'd go to work when I had to go to work. Uh, I ended up kind of switching places of employment at the time. But that just opened up, you know, more doors for me to continue to, broaden my horizons and, you know, do drugs and drink all day long. Um, How so? No, I think it's important. I, was, I think when people yeah. don't understand that this thing exists, like, look, this guy, this older guy had a prescription and knew that, I mean, uh, maybe he had some type of pain issue or whatever, but could make so much money that he was like, I'm going to sell this and he's going to sell it to somebody like Sean or sell it to someone like me. I mean, I, that didn't happen to my, like, how do I get Percocets is because somebody else outside of my own prescription, other people that were getting them that didn't really need them knew that there was money to be made. And they started doing that as well. Yeah. And they became a, so now you're hanging out with this person. Yeah. I mean, I spent all day, every day with him and I got to know him really well. You know, right. we actually, I mean, I guess you could say we became good friends, yeah. but I was ultimately over there for one sole purpose. And that was those drugs. Yeah, it's almost interesting like that. Uh, you know, on another episode, I talked to a guy who runs Dopey Podcast, and he said he always wants to, like, explore the dope dealer-buyer relationships and, and how – because it is. I mean, yeah. here this guy is – I mean, he's not your I, – I see – the picture I have in my head is just, like, a guy middle-aged or, you know, that <laughs> knows what's going on, but he – you know, he's – how do I explain this? I know how to. It's not like your traditional dope boy – rolling up and, and giving you drugs. It was, you, you know, he wanted, uh, you develop a friendship, you hang out, you see his family, all those things. Oh, yeah. And you're doing this like downstairs or in the garage away yep. from everybody else. So what he's doing, he doesn't really want everybody else to know necessarily. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like hidden away. Right. It wasn't like, a right. this is not a traditional drug dealer. He knew that it was wrong too, but he needed the money and he's got a new friend that's, you know. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, he, he had an issue himself. Right. And I became, you know, I actually became really close to that family at the time. And I got sure to know them all very well. Why I did was, they think they were, you, you were over there just because you like. They had, knew. Oh, they did. They okay. knew. They were a pretty open family about drinking and getting high. Got it. How'd you meet them? Do you remember? Yeah. A good f- friend of mine from school. He was actually in prison at the time, but I got into contact with his father at some point and right. I ended up hanging out with his father. So this was everybody's dad. Yeah. There you go. See? And, yeah, it was just kind of the way it went. 
Dude, I used to buy pills from a, a, a childhood friend of mine, and then he would get them from his father-in-law. And I'd go to his father-in-law's house, and I'd you know hook up their stereo system or do some work on their computer for pills. Like, I mean, it was an interesting relationship because I also hung out there, hang out, hung out with the kids. I hung out with this. I mean, this was a couple times a week or almost every day. It got to the point where it was every day that I would leave work to go buy a handful of Percocet so that I could go and work the rest of the day. I would take a long lunch break or something. And sometimes he, you know, I would be waiting. Like you talk about it, it just sparks that in my head where I would sit out in front of his house until he got there. Like he and his wife were out the lunch or whatever. And they knew what was up. Yeah. But I was also like a family friend too. He just, I mean, and he wasn't like he was charging me an arm and a leg, but he still had to make some money off of them. Mm-hmm. Um, man, what a crazy thing. Because that's when, that was when I knew things were changing, but I wasn't willing. I, I felt as though I needed that. And I had to, and just like you. Right. Yeah. It just was. And this is the same story, mind you, for a lot of people. A lot of people got, got started. Yours was a little different because you were never uh, legally prescribed pain medication. I was right. Yeah. And then that turned into something else. Uh, my I have to own it and I have to be responsible to it. You were you got you gained an addiction through high school, which the necessity of, of, of taking those pills every day grew and grew and grew. Uh, you even at one point took the Suboxone because you thought it was going to help. And maybe it did, you know, that you weren't taking all these other things, but you were still smoking and drinking on top of it. And it didn't stick. It wasn't like you, there was no program of recovery in that. There was literally just let me get my pills every month. You're paying your mom's probably You guys are paying for you to go yep. several hundred dollars a month. Yeah, but it was, was. going to be right. So your mom paid for that. See yep. what I mean? So your mom's thinking, oh, this is going to help him that way. He can get off of it all. They sold her on the idea. You sold her on the idea, I would guess. And then you go do it, and it all it does is opens up a new door for you. Yeah, and that's what it did. Dude, it's kind of fucked up. Yeah, I agree. And well, no, I mean, and I and I don't. I know, and you know, and we know. We get it. We get that. But a lot of people don't. They don't understand how these things seem to happen, and how it's almost like you. We go from one person to the next, and you now all of a sudden you have a new group of friends, and they're doing other things, and then you get hooked up with this person because of that group of friends, and now you're hanging out with another group of people, and then that group of people, all of a sudden you, you start hanging out with other ones. Like It just kind of grows, and these people find each other. We find as addicts, as alcoholics, we gravitate towards each other. We can find each other anywhere, out of, out of the state, you know. Heck, some people I've had on my show, they find people out in another country that are doing the same thing. So we, whatever it is, we know. And that's kind of wild. Yeah. And I could literally go to the other side of the country. And if that's what I'm looking for, I'll yeah, find, find it. it. Right. 24 hours. Yeah. That's, I mean, 24 that's hours, thing. I'll find it. I will find it. I agree with that. I always tell people like, you know, if you say there's a whole bunch of dope on the moon, we're going to find a way to go. Right. Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to pick up the pace and, and kind of change the direction here. So this uh, snowballs into something else, right? So it, now Opanas are what? Because they leave the picture? Uh, well, so, you know, I, they became like Oxycontin and they right. changed the formula on how they um, work. So you couldn't snort them and you couldn't shoot them anymore. I wasn't shooting them at the time. I was snorting them. But, uh, you know, still having a stigma against heroin, somebody said, this is what I got. And I said, well, sell it to me one time. Don't ever sell it to me again because right. I still had a stigma against heroin, even right. though I'd been doing an extraordinary amount of same legal heroin. Same for me. Really, you know? And um, and that's how that started. You start trying it one time, and you're like, well, it what's one the time, big deal? It was the solution to the problem. I was sick. It's what I needed. Mm-hmm. Same. So uh, I 
started doing heroin every day. Mine actually interesting, and I've <clears> talked about it again before, is the first time I tried heroin was from a dope boy who accidentally gave it to me. It was very, like, because I was buying cocaine from him at the time, and it made me viciously ill, and, and I probably <laughs> would have overdosed if it wasn't for the fact he keep, kept my ass alive with cocaine. Yeah. Like, not kidding. But the next time, so that was like, I'm never doing that again, but because um, I was still doing the pills and stuff like that. It's like I kept hopping from different substances, but then it got that I was hanging out with a buddy. We were buying Oxycontin, and they were all of a sudden, it was like they're, they jumped up from like $40 to $80 overnight, yep. right? And I was like, I can't spend that. He's like, well, we can get this heroin stuff. It's like, man, I really don't want to do heroin. I really don't. And yet here we are. I'm doing it. And then I do it. I was like, dude, I don't understand why I was, this gives me the same feelings the Oxycontin did, and yep. it cost me 20 bucks. Like, this was so silly. Like, the people have lied to me. All they go, this didn't make me, you know what I mean? And I, I'm guessing you went through that, too, very, like very mentally. Similar. So now you're doing heroin. Yeah. You're I, buying and, it. And, yeah, and I continued to do that. And, you know, at this time, I I, I wasn't going to college anymore. <clears throat> uh, that kind of, like, fell to the wayside and I wasn't playing baseball anymore. And I figured since I had a job that I was doing all right, I right. continued to work. Uh, and as I continued to work, my addiction continued to get worse. I started, you know, I got to the point where I was, you know, buying a significant amount of heroin weekly and I'd spend upwards of $500 a week just to support my habit. And I was still living in my mother's basement. So you didn't have any bills. I guess cell phone None. probably or this or that, but I, really. Yeah. I mean, she, she paid for my cell phone. Well, so look at that. And that was really just because. I would never pay for it myself. Right. She wanted to make sure I was okay if I disappeared for the night. I get it. And that's what it was. And I truly believe that's why she never got rid of it because she wanted me to be able to contact her if I absolutely needed to. And she wanted to be able to make sure that I was still alive. Got it. Because, I mean, she she knew. Damn, what we put our moms through, dude. Well, I feel I feel terrible about it to this day. And, I mean, I'm telling you, she's a wonderful woman. Same with my mom. You know what I mean? Like the two... Your mom looked at us like the little boys that they gave birth to, that they raised, that they want to be, that have be good men and, you know, bring them grandbabies at one point in, in their lives. And, you know, all of those things. I mean, I, and I believe that knowing you today is I didn't, I didn't know you prior to this and you also didn't know me. Yeah. Uh, but there was a point in my life where I was self-sufficient and great and doing a lot of stuff, but it, it got, it was like, I jumped off the cliff. Right. And all of a sudden I became this very needy, um, lying, manipulative guy that really without his mom would have, I mean, she went through so much, dude, so much, so much money, so much time, so much heartache. I even talked to her recently and it was like, mom, you know, one of those unforeseen things uh, about my recovery and I understand it, but I just got like really, uh, I understand it, but now I understood it was that my mom doesn't have to worry anymore. Like, yep. your mom doesn't have to worry about you today. Yep. And That's I, a beautiful thing. I make sure to call her every day so, so she doesn't have to mom, worry. Right. I keep my mom included in everything that I'm doing, what my successes, my, you know, difficulties, just life in general, and just to remind her that I love her and I, and I appreciate her standing by my side. And I think you could say the same thing about your mom, too, because you started off by saying that. Yeah. And, and you know, like, just that, that uh, ability to be honest with my mother about what's going on means the world to me at this yeah. point. And, and I'm really glad that I'm able to call her every day and let her know, like, I'm all right. You know, I've been working third shift lately, and I just tell her, like, I worked all night, and I'm going home and going to bed. Right. You know, that's pretty much what it is. And I wake up, and, you know, I might call her before I go to work or something to see what she's doing. And, 
and I I get to be a part of my mother's life at this point. And, you know, especially after I drug her through hell for years and years. Scared her to death, dude. That's the thing is that your mom, I'm sure, at one point had to come to the terms that she might lose her son. Yeah. There was was a couple instances where, you know, I I got so bad off. You know, I I was, I started shooting heroin after, uh, you know, snorting it for two years. I proceeded to shoot heroin for two and a half years. And uh, there were a few instances that she found me in a, a really bad spot. You Give know, me an like example because I, I think be it's important. Kind of like falling asleep, you know, in my food. I remember literally nodding out in my food at the dinner table one time, and she would yell yell at me all the time for it. And I'd just be like, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm tired. tired. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm tired. Long day, you know. Like, she knows what I'm doing. Right. And uh, it was a New Year's Eve, actually, probably about six months before I ended up getting sober. She found me on... Uh, the floor of my bedroom in her basement. And I had, uh, you know, shot up some, what I thought was heroin. It was actually fentanyl. And she found me on the floor. I woke up in a deep gasp breath and I looked at her and still had a needle in my hand. And she was just fucking terrified, man. Right. Absolutely terrified. And I felt so bad about it. I was so ashamed. And I just, like, got up and ran out of the house because I was going to a New Year's party. And I I got to that New Year's party, and I ruined it for all my friends. How so? Everybody, I mean, you're already blitzed, right? You you just came back to life. Oh, yeah, I got there. I threw up for about 20 minutes, you know, like on and off before I even walked into the party. And I walked in, and people just looked at me, and they kept asking me, like, what was, are you all right? Like, are you okay? And for the rest of the night, I had people trying to talk to me about getting help, you know, trying to like make sure I'm okay, that I'm not going to die in right. their house because I must've looked that bad. Oh yeah. I'm sure you did. You were probably you but look, you've been shooting dope now for two years. You get overdosed. Yeah. You push through the overdose. You still think it's important for you to go to this party because you don't want to miss out on it. <laughs> so, you yeah. also damn sure don't want to be at home with your mom who just looked you right, like right through you and, and knew the jig is up in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. And you're there and you are, I mean, you're, you're that high that you're throwing up outside Right, because then people don't know this, or I know this, but if you use certain amounts of dope, it's going to make you sick. Yeah. But you'll throw up, and you'll throw up a lot, but you still are high. Like yeah. you can't. I mean, this is just yeah, your I mean, body, it's... like trying to tell you, like, hey, this you're on the brink of death here, son. Yeah. Uh, and getting it out, your body, you know, you're nauseous, you're this, but you're high, and you're you're euphoric, and you can't keep your eyes open, and this is lasting for a while too. Mm-hmm. So you're at this party, and people are concerned for you because you are a hot mess. You look. Like Walking Dead, right? I, I had to have, right? Yeah, I had to have been pale, nodding ass out, white. And all that, yeah, and... you know. Not. I remember I was just standing there at one point. I was coherent and I was drinking too, because you know that's what I that's do. What you do I right? shoot that's dope not a and problem. drink, right? And I, I was uh, just standing there, and a good friend of mine who I grew up with and played baseball with and stuff ran across the room to catch me, right? And I just looked at him like, what the hell was that? You know, like I saw him do it, but apparently he thought I was going down. Because you're like moving funny. I and, guess. Right. I, I don't know exactly what it was, but that it, I just I was like, what the hell was that? Right. Because I witnessed it, but apparently I was just that far gone where I had no clue that that was even happening. Right. I get and, that. And it was, it was honestly embarrassing. 
Is it? Uh, yeah, you can look at. Was it embarrassing to you then, or more so now when you look at it? Yeah, you know, especially when I got sober. You know, right? You're and, like, and, and I actually went around, and I, I was. Uh, I had the opportunity to discuss. You know, certain scenarios that I experienced with those guys, and um, talk to them about exactly what it is, and admit my wrong there. So you got a chance to talk to them about this. Uh, what they had experienced, what they saw in you, what your feelings were, all of that, right? Yeah. And there was something happened, and this is well after you got clean and sober? or Yeah, it was probably about two years after I had gotten sober. Okay. So, no, I'm curious, though. So, you, you know, I, I've heard your story before, and, you know, this event on New Year's Eve was after something else had happened. Correct. Yeah. So what had happened was about six months prior to that, uh, you know, I had kind of gotten locked into the, the I, w- I went to rehab when I was 22 years old. Okay. It, it did me a little bit of justice for a very short amount of time. I tried this boxing thing again and, uh, you know, eventually I started smoking weed and drinking and I went back to uh, doing heroin. And within two months, I was real bad off. So I went downtown one day, picked up some drugs blacked out immediately after doing them. Right. And uh, I, I opened my eyes on the highway and ended up in a scenario where I, I totaled my vehicle. Uh, I was way, way out of it, and I picked up a possession of heroin and aggravated possession of fentanyl drug charge. So that landed me in uh, the county's drug court. Let me ask you a question. So you wreck your car on the highway. Yeah. Total it. Total. Did you hit anybody else? Thankfully, I did not. So did you go off the media? Like, how, how, paint this picture so people yeah, understand it, it, here. It, you had just, you went to rehab two months prior to that, right? A few. Yeah, a few okay. months prior. A few months prior. You got back on Suboxone. You were doing this, like, you were trying to have a life that was better. You were, you know, you knew that you had an issue. Yeah. But now you found yourself doing heroin again. Yeah. Whatever the, what would, do you remember what the catalyst was? You were just like, man, screw this or what? Uh. N- no, I mean, I when I was in rehab, I truly believed that I would never do it again. But you still wanted to smoke weed and drink? Not even. Interesting. So you didn't have any plans to go back out and use? None. I you don't... thought, this is it. I'm done. I've had enough problems. I mean, this has been going on for years of my life. I'm going to give it my all. But now, all of a sudden, you find yourself buying drugs again. Yeah, I don't know when or how the decision was made, but... Well, we it also happened. know. Well, we also know that recovery is a daily thing, right? We hear that in the Correct. rooms of recovery, yeah. and it's very true, right? Very. So, what I did yesterday, and though I did great things yesterday, does not ensure the fact that I'm going to do them today. I could have a terrible scenario happen. I could have something that that creates me to be full of fear or anxiety, and those things do happen. I could lose, you know, uh, someone who's close to me. I mean, there's a there's a magnitude of reasons that would tell me, screw it, I'm going to go use, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is what's kind of happening to you. I don't know. I went there, but I know the feelings here because you didn't have any plan. You didn't. You didn't sit in treatment saying, "I'm in two months. I'm going to go overdose in my car after buying dope downtown and rack and total my vehicle and pick up now a felony charge." You've never had a felony. Never had a felony. And prior now, to that. And not only that is that you've totaled your vehicle. You could have died, right? Yep. You could have hurt somebody. You black out. Or, you know, you over, you basically, yeah, you, you yeah. nod out at the wheel and you wake up to police and EMTs on the scene. Yeah. I mean, so what had happened was, is I, uh, opened my eyes when I was driving down the highway, I was going 70 and I was right by the median in the middle of the highway in the, uh, fast lane and it's scared the hell out of me. So I jerked my wheel 
screamed across the highway and smacked into the guardrail on the other side. Shit. And it threw me back out into the middle of the highway, and I tried to correct my car and overcorrected a full U-turn back into the middle wall. So I was facing the opposite way, and when I you know, got through it all, I opened my, up my eyes, and there was already a line of traffic built up, and people you know, were coming out trying to run up and help me and ask me if I was okay and stuff, but I was just, I was... You were high as a kite. I, I was so high that I disregarded at all of them. It'll be okay. I'm going to leave. I'm all right. I yeah, hopped out of the car. You know, I tried. I just told him, like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. And uh, I was trying to leave is what I was trying to do, but I didn't realize how destroyed my car was, so I right. popped the hood trying to put the battery back together so I could get the hell out of there. Right. And a, a cop pulled up. I mean, somebody had to have called prior. You right. Know? So you're, he, you're he, showed, he showed up real quick. And uh, he walked up, and he was like, whoa, man, I don't know what you've been doing today, but you need to turn around and put your hands behind your back, and I'm going to search you, and if I find anything, we'll we'll deal with it. And that's when I, you know, he pulled him right out of my pocket, threw him on the hood, and put me in the back of his car, and that was the beginning of the end. Right. So you go down first time ever being booked into, what? did you go to Hamilton County? I went to Hamilton County. So Hamilton County, Ohio, you're, you they pull in. You're still high. Do you didn't go to the hospital or anything? You went right to the jail? Or did well, you, go- you know, I denied going to the hospital okay. because I knew that they were going to Narcan me at the hospital. Uh, so I guess the cop decided that he was going to take me anyway. So I went to the hospital in a cop car. He made me go, and I got there, and I pretty much kind of like fought the nurses to Narcan me because I wanted to keep that high. And they Narcan me. I sat in there. I called my mother, and she just said, well, call me when you get out of jail. Wow. And what was that like the first time you ever went to the jail? Do you remember? I, I know you'd I, have to remember that. Or are you so high you can't really remember? I, I really don't remember the first 24 hours, but I remember sitting in there. I banged on the door all night, pretty much acting as if I was innocent. And uh, I didn't think that I had done anything wrong, really. And I was just trying to figure out what was going on because I didn't know how long I was going to be in there. I was scared. Yeah, I was imagine. really scared. I had no clue what I got myself into. I think this is an important segue to tell people what it's like to go to J- Hamilton County uh, Justice Center, which is our county jail. So what happens is a cop, if you're in the back seat, they'll pull up to these large metal doors. They will hit a keypad and they open up. <laughs> and you'll go in. They'll drive forward. Those large steel doors close behind you. They park their car. They put their gun in a uh, a safety like safety deposit box yep. type of style thing. They walk you in, you they, they hold you the entire time, like you know, you're in handcuffs, they get your information, they take your picture, they take uh, an initial fingerprint, your social security number, then they walk you in, they go through all your personal belongings, they stand you against the wall and they, they search you again, and if it's a felony possession, they bring you into another room, which is closed off from the regular intake to where they have you take off all of your clothes, and, and if you're a man, you have to... I mean, you have to lift up your testicles. You have to do all. I mean, like, it's bad. You have to bend over and cough while a while a corrections officer is looking at you and to make sure that you haven't uh, put any drugs in other parts of your body. Then after that, you're instructed to put your clothes back on. You walk through a, uh, a large x-ray machine to see if they have anything inside your body uh, that they couldn't have seen just with their regular eyes. 
they once they do that, they instruct you to sit on this large blue bench that people who have just now received your personal property are going through and marking. That way they know once upon release that this is what you have with you. They deposit all of your money into a central ATM machine, which immediately goes into your possession. Uh, you don't have access to it, but that's a way that they don't have just cash lingering around the jail. You are then asked to sign that this is the personal property that they have, and they ask you if you want to use the phone. You tell them typically, yes, I need to call someone, and then you have a card. On that card is given a number. That number is your jail number that they have just given you. You have to use that in order to make a phone call. You're limited to just a few minutes. There's plenty of other people being booked in as you're sitting there. You have to take your turn from there. You go and sit and talk to a nurse, which a nurse assesses your mental health. If you uh, any health complications, more than likely telling you that you're going to be staying the night um, so that they, if you have any life-threatening illnesses or need of medication, that they can administer that very quickly. If you are going to be overdosing in the jail, if you're suicidal, after that, you are instructed into a line of people to get fully photographed and fingerprinted. That a very archaic process where they put a terrible amount of black ink all over your hands, <laughs> uh, and they give you a pumice stone-styled uh, bar of soap to wash off that doesn't work very well. But after that, maybe someone will bring you a bag lunch, and that bag lunch includes two cookies, an orange drink, not juice, an orange drink, which is uh, flavored of high fructose corn syrup, something a six-year-old would like to have for lunch, a small, uh, very thin piece of bologna sandwiched between uh, two pieces of white bread. From there, you are then taken, and you're waiting. These are things, are not, this is not happening quickly. This is happening in hour intervals. So now all, all of a sudden, you've been sitting there for four hours, and now you're finally going into what they call a holding cell with everybody else, all the other men or women that have just been arrested that evening. You will sit in there for another, another several hours. You will do what's called pre-trial. So you'll speak to another person. They ask you, uh, you know, about your living situation and, you know, uh, if you're in any current drug treatment. They, this is information they're going to pass on to your, your judge who you are getting arraigned to see the following day if you're lucky enough. From there, a uh, corrections officer, after sitting around with a bunch of other loud people, very gross people. For, I mean, you know, even if you might yourself could have been gross, it doesn't matter. If you're arrested, this is what you're going through. Finally, another corrections officer will have a stack full of folders with individual names on them. They will check your armband to make sure that that is you. They will lead you into what are called holding cells. And then within that, they're going to hand you a, a bedroll. That includes uh, a sheet, a blanket, and maybe a toothbrush with some toothpaste and then you are isolated for maybe the next 12 hours, um, depending on when you get arrested, because you will not be able to go to court that same day. It will always be the following day at the earliest. So then you'll be woken up at 5 a.m., maybe sometimes 4.30. They will give you breakfast, which is usually consists of some oatmeal and a hard-boiled egg or some terrible, <laughs> disgusting you know, stuff you wouldn't even feed to your dog in the morning. And then from there, you'll sit and wait to see the, the judge for your arraignment, which may take several hours. You'll be up hours. The minutes feel like hours. Hours feel like days. You'll finally get in front of a judge. They'll ask you how you plead. Typically, you're going to say not guilty unless, I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, and they will uh, do a bond hearing and see if you are, uh, if if it's going to cost you anything to to get out. If it doesn't, you are released from that holding cell and sent home. If you are have a bond, then you are sent to general population in the jail. That is a nice real breakdown of what 
just that part is. I've been through it so many times that it ultimately got comfortable with the process that I knew somehow once those doors closed behind me in a jail cell that it was going to be okay. Yep. That's a problem. This is your first time. You're freaked out. I remember the first time I was freaked out too because I don't know. But after a while, I got very hip to the process here. And I was like, let's get it moving. Come on. I just want to get upstairs. I want to get into general population. Get me dressed down. All these things. Anyway. It's important to take a deviation at times to talk about these things so people have an understanding of the process in which things are happening. And you have a felony over your head. They release you. You are getting put in what's called drug court in Hamilton County. First-time offenders and even sometimes second-time offenders are given the option to go in front of our drug court judge by the name of Judge Kimberly Burke, who ultimately saved my life and saved Sean's as well. So six months after this, though, you're still using. Well, they let you back out. You go right back to using. Well, you know, I actually tried to stay sober. Okay. And I, I think maybe I stayed sober for a couple months before I started doing anything else. And it was it was inevitable. It was right. like unstoppable. I didn't know I could not stay sober on my own. Where you were, you were working a program recovery. of recovery. I That's had, the thing. You know, I had no recovery in sight. I didn't know really anything about recovery. And I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I, I pretty much got continuances for the next six or seven months and uh eventually you know after that new year's eve i just gave in and i went all out because i had no concern for any consequences at that point and thankfully i'm very very thankful to you know judge burke because she saved my life and i hated it at the time hated everything about it but she put me uh into an inpatient treatment facility when at the beginning of 2015 January 2015 and um you know like I said that those charges were the beginning of the end for me okay so from there what what was it because look now you had had some periods of sobriety that didn't stick right correct and now you're in a lockdown facility court ordered for how many months I was in there for two and a half months. Two and a half months. Two and a half months spending it with other guys in a lockdown facility meetings from 12 steps being brought in yep um, some treatment work, I guess we could call it, but an opportunity just to kind of dry out and, and look at what you've put yourself through more than anything. Yeah. Right. Um, and what happened? So, I mean, when I was in there, you know, I, I met quite a few people and, uh, you know, started to kind of see a little bit of how recovery worked and I started to, uh, get a little bit more involved in it. And, and I had every intention of staying sober when I left. You know, I, I no longer wanted to live that way anymore. So when I finally, you know, it came the day that I was getting out, I knew I was going to stay sober. And that's what it was. I, I knew in my heart that I was going to stay sober when I left. And when I left, I stuck to uh, going to the IOP classes that were mandatory. intensive outpatient for people who don't know. Yep, I got, I got stuck. You know, I commit to those, and I commit to going to work 40 hours a week. And I moved back home with my mother. And, again, like I said, I knew I was going to stay sober, but two weeks after I left, I wasn't sober anymore. Really? I, I don't know the thought process behind it or anything. I, I didn't anticipate that I would ever use drugs again. And against my own will, it happened. I don't know how it happened. I can't pinpoint the day it happened. But I know that once it did happen for the next month, I couldn't stop. And thankful once again, you know, to, to Judge Burke, I couldn't uh, have any clean drug tests. 
So she put me back in that treatment facility a month later, and I learned a very important lesson that I don't have power over, con- you know, going back to that. Right. And that's why this is not going to be know, different. Like you mentioned, it requires a daily effort to uh, of recovery to try to progress, you know, in my own life and with myself and to, to help other people ultimately is the end goal. But, um, and then I learned that once I start, I can't stop. And I guess I knew that, you know, prior, but for some reason, I couldn't see it at the time that I started using again. Right. And when I did, I couldn't stop. And I tried to dodge drug tests and do all that crazy stuff that we do to get by and not get caught. But I mean, eventually it catches up with you and you're lucky that it didn't get any worse. Yeah, like um, that she gave you that she saw like, you know, Sean, we're going to do this and you're going to get you're going back to inpatient, which I'm sure was like, no, don't. Well, I thought I was going to jail for a week. So I did a gram of heroin that night. I woke up the next morning and I scrounged up what I had left before I went to court. And uh, I figure, you know, I'll just go for a week and I'll get out and I'll be sober and I'll try it again then. And thankfully, she put me back in that treatment facility. And I'm really glad she did because if I only had a week, I would have gotten out and I would have continued to do that. But, you know, that next month that I was in that treatment facility, I reached the darkest place that I had ever been in my entire life. And and I thoroughly contemplated killing myself because I knew I couldn't continue to drink and get high. And I had no clue how to live without it. Right. It was I was so full of fear that I thought killing myself was a valid way out. I thought it was acceptable. Did you start making plans while you were in there? I thought a lot about it. Yeah, I had multiple ways on how I was going to go about it. And you were going to do it there is what you're saying. Uh, there or I did know a way out. So, you know, every every time we went down to eat, I had my shoes on, tied tight. Thinking about running right out that door. Everything I needed in my pockets to be able to go through the kitchen. Yep. Yeah. And I thought a lot about it every time. But when I was in there, I continued to talk to uh, people about it. Really, one individual, you know, he sat and listened to me. And I told him what I was thinking about doing and how I was thinking about doing it. And about a month and a week after I had gotten in there, I finally told my mother, like, you need to go get my money for my job. And I I need you to go get that and take it away because if you don't, I'm going to leave. Right. And she did. She went up there and got it and... I I think that that was when I finally surrendered to the fact that I just can't do it anymore. I didn't have it in me to kill myself, think, and I had to find some way out. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just sitting there thinking, do you believe telling another person about your honest feelings that, like, I want to die and I want to leave right now? I want to leave. I want to go, you know. Do you think by doing that and being honest about it had helped you ultimately stay? I do. Yeah, I mean, because someone was willing to listen, is what you're saying. Just the pure and utter honesty, you know. Bro, I hate this shit. It was enough relief to just like sit down and let it be what it was. Right. Otherwise, it would have drove me insane. Was that one of the employees? It was not. No, it was another client. Okay. Yeah. You talk to another client, another person that's going through that you. Did you had meet that person your first go around there? Uh, my second. So second time. Yeah. yeah, we got in there one day apart, and we left a few days apart, and uh, he was actually one of the only other guys who stayed sober. And what do you remember him saying to you? He would just listen. That's it. And that was the most important thing. That was what I needed was for him to listen. He gave me a little bit of guidance on the fact that it was a terrible idea. Yeah. 
And I, I'm glad he did. And he was he was nice enough to sit and listen when I needed to let it out. And that meant the world. It's funny. That little bit of compassion can change everything. Right? Oh, it, it did, too. It really did. When you really look at that and you can say, yes, this person, because... You, you know, I, uh, you never know who's going to be your messenger or, you know what I mean? You never really know within that, um, and how a moment like that can save your life. Right. I mean, I've talked about, and when I do, and I speak there or anywhere that if it wasn't for going to that place, I would have never had the spiritual experience that allowed me to have the life I do today. Yep. And I'm, I don't care what led up to that. I don't, it doesn't matter. I think it's all worth it because of that day. And then everything since that day. And in a lot of ways, it's the same thing happening to you. Uh, and that's awesome because it just goes to show that there's this camaraderie and, and uh, recovery uh, in these similar circumstances, feelings like I wanted to die. My brother had just killed himself and I didn't want to live. I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I was so pissed off the entire day trying to figure out ways I could leave and go get high. And they knew it, right? They knew it all day long. And I talked about it. I said, fuck this. Fuck all of it. I'm not a terrible day. You know, all of that stuff. I just want to get out of here and go, you know. I remember. No, right. There's no reason. But then someone gave me a reason. Someone said, no, you just go to bed, dude. Go to bed. I remember. So now, as a result of this, as a result of that moment and saying, like, what tends to happen? What, well, at least what happened to you? What did you do after you decided to stay? You talked to your mom. You were honest, you know. About things, what changed? Do you remember? I, I really don't remember exactly what changed. I remember talking to my mother about it when she came to visit me at one point. And um, I think really what made such a difference was the people, you know, who were bringing meetings in from a 12-step program. It was just to hear their hope. Right. And, and their smiles the, across their face, and, too. And, and the fact that they come in and their free time to give back, you know, hope that they received from other people in recovery right is really what it is and i just saw a glimmer of that at some point in time and uh you know i, I fell into the the brotherhood of recovery and i just started doing what people in recovery do i was hanging out with people in recovery i was you know doing fun activities with people in recovery i was you know involved in my own recovery right and and i i did what was suggested and that was to, uh, you know, look at my life and really, you know, in the simplest way is come to terms with it, mm -hmm. you know, through, you know, certain ways that is suggested in a, in a 12 step program. Right. And that's what happened. So I finally came to terms with my life and exactly where I had been, what I had done, who I had harmed, how much chaos I had really caused. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at it for the fact that it was my doing and, and I accumulated the willingness and I truly believe this through God to be able to um, make amends to the individuals where I needed to and to continue to help other people along the way. Because in terms it helps you. It, that's it the does. thing that that's the wild thing about this is that the more you help others through their shit, the more it helps you with yours. And people would say that all the time. And and I thought like, it was the craziest so thing ever. I was like, what the hell does that even mean? Right. You mean I'm going to go do this? Like, I need help. You're like, when yeah, I, it's going to help you. When Trust I me. experienced it right. is when I knew what they meant. 
And I continued to follow suit because I got relief and comfort and peace and happiness from helping other people. And that's all we ever really saw it was comfort and peace. That's, that's exactly what we saw what in it drugs, was. right? We saw it in that. We saw it the comfort and peace knowing that this this substance is going to provide that, yet all it did was make it worse, right? And, and that guy, you know, that guy continuing to sit there and listen to me complain about my life and tell him how much I wanted to kill myself, really that was love. Yeah. And I needed that. You know, I had received love in many different ways, but he was there at the perfect time to literally just love me by listening. And it made all the difference. I mean, he saved my life with his ears. As crazy as that sounds, that's the way it worked. I think it's beautiful. I think not only, I mean, you know, is there so many similarities through your own life and, and mine and, and many of us in recovery. But now I just want, I, I want to build upon this and, and kind of finalize some of these things. So now, as a result of those things, a result of that treatment, what in, in being having a life that's full of recovery, right, where you consciously make the effort to give to others, to be honest, to, um, I mean, all of the tenets of what a life of recovery look like, what has happened in your life? Are some of those amazing things that you would see that glimmer of hope in other people's eyes, did it start to come true in your own life? Well, you know, so, I, I mean, really, I, I have a few people that I love more than anybody in the whole world. You know, those being my girlfriend to this day is one of them, but at that time it was my niece, my mother, and my sister. <clears throat> and I was able to finally be a part of their lives. And I remember when I was like eight months sober, I had always wanted to do it for as, you know, as long as I can remember, let's go see Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Okay. Old TSO. Yeah. And I loved it. I got to go, I got to take my sister there when I was eight months sober. I paid for it because I had been working a full-time job and right. contributing back, you know, and doing what I was supposed to be doing. Life full recovery. It brought me that beautiful time with my sister and I'll never, ever forget that. You know, it brought me a lot of times I could actually, you know, hang out with my niece and take pictures with her, go to the park with her, show up at a soccer game and be a part of her life. And she loves hearing from her Uncle Sean more than anything. You know, she's my favorite. And then for my mom, I, I get to call her every day and tell her that I'm okay. And I get to know that she doesn't have to continue to stay up all night worrying about where her son's at and if he's alive. And that was the biggest thing for me because she's my favorite person in the whole world if I'm being honest and uh that was it's it still to this day is the most important thing to me but I, I also uh coach a baseball team in the summertime which I started when I was about eight months sober right yeah uh, maybe not eight months maybe it was like four months you know okay. I posted something on Facebook crazy weird situation happened to where it happened to be a few minutes down the road from me and uh <laughs> I was living in a sober living house coaching a, a baseball team. It's awesome. I think uh, it's great. It was seven and eight-year-olds at the time and down in the west end of Cincinnati, and I got to be a part of that for my first year. And then I followed up doing that with the second year, and then I followed up with the same team on the third year. And I just you know finished my third year coaching this baseball team, and it's been a pleasure to sit and watch these kids grow right, and teach them something you know that I know a lot about. And – you know, my family paid a lot of money and organized a lot of stuff to be able to arrange me to learn this. And Might as well I, do something with it, right? I, I get to teach these kids for free. <laughs> it's you pretty know, awesome. Down in the West End of Cincinnati where they don't have much privilege. Right. Where there's not a lot of, you know, uh, comfortability, I guess you could say. That's like their getaway is to come to baseball. 
and and every year you know i go to practice and you know coach shaw coach shaw what's up man how you doing it's good to see you and it's really cool to be a part of that and to be able to give back in that sense and watch these kids grow right and some of them are great athletes you know they're going to be great athletes and it's cool to be part of that process um i mean there's really so many different things that i can talk about that I never would have expected what happened in my life because when I was 23 years old, I got sober in that facility. I truly believed six months prior to that that I was going to die by the time I was 25. And I, I believed that it was roughly when I was 25 years old, I got to watch my sister graduate high school. And, and I remember sitting in that auditorium and I, I started to tear up a little bit. And my brother looks at me like, are you crying? I'm like, no, no, no. You know, kind of look away like I wasn't crying, but that was the most meaningful moment, like one of the most meaningful moments of my life to be able to be there for that because I didn't think I would be alive at that point in my life, and I was okay with that. But, you know, following the sober side, and I got to experience what life really was, and I got to, uh, you know, be at some sort of contentment that I got to experience cool situations like that. And to be a part of my family and, and to show up to work and work hard and do well and work my way up in a specific company. And I did that as well. I worked at a, a pizza restaurant for four years. Right. And, you know, I, I felt as if I gained a lot of respect and it was solely because of my recovery. Mm -hmm. If I had no recovery, I wouldn't have a job. Right. I wouldn't have a home. I wouldn't have anything at all. My family would be gone. Yeah, because you're not living in your mom's basement. Well, right? I'd be flying a sign. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Not though. anymore. Yeah, thank thanks to Judge Burke. Right, you know? <laughs> you're going to sober living this time. Right. No, and I and I think that's key. Right. So, and I, and I think you've made a, a great case here of saying, you know, uh, life is really that much better on the other side. It and really it's better is. than you had have ever really ever even imagined. And it's hard to explain that to somebody early on in recovery. Yeah. It's like if I if you could just be in my brain then you could for say, 10 right. minutes. Right. You would understand. Well, and I guess that's the segue here if you could say something to someone who's still struggling, what would that be? Hang on tight because I can guarantee you that you're walking into something that you can't even imagine how good it can get. And, you know, I'm not going to say life is perfect all the time. I'm not going to say that I'm perfect at life. I'm not going to say that I'm the greatest person to ever live or that I do everything right. But I continue to progress every day and I continue to try to be loving and tolerant in every aspect of my life. And that's exactly what has gotten me to this point. And uh, I continue to help other people, even though sometimes I really don't want to. I feel like I got better things to do. But every time I do that, I feel so much better. I feel so much better about life, about being able to do something like that. And it is, you know, it's gained me four and a half years of sobriety that if I had to say, wouldn't even, I, I, I wouldn't even deserve. And I'm, I'm really grateful, you know, on this side. I'm grateful for the people who have been there for me through my journey, especially my family. I've gotten to know some incredible people and great friends. You know, I remember meeting you three years ago, and it was just like you you were ready. You were ready. And, it, and it's great to be able to see somebody hop right into the middle of recovery because they, they, they know where the solution is. It's just a matter of kind of following that path. Right. 
And uh, to see that is really one of the most beautiful things about being in recovery is watching other people recover. And I've gotten to know some great people, you know, through that. It's just something I could not even explain. And it's like if someone's new out there, you know, really, that's what I can say. It's like just hold on, (laughs) hang on and stick around the people who continue to want to progress themselves. That recovery side is that important is that it's just so worth it. There we go. Well, Sean, thanks so much for coming in after work early on a Sunday morning. Uh, you know, I, I think you definitely embody a story of from tragedy to triumph because at one point in time, as you've even said, that uh, you thought you wouldn't be here and you have surpassed that and you have a life that is triumphant in the ways that you give and then you turn, you know, have, have grown. And uh, I think that's awesome. So thank you to my listeners. Share this with people that you know could use a little motivation in their life. Um, these people are real. These are our friends. These are people that are putting the work in because the bottom line is this. If they can do it, so can you. And that's what we want you to know. Thanks for listening. And as always, do big things. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.